who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. IGN Playlist is a new home to your game library. Rate games, share lists, and log your game time powered by How Long to Beat. Sign up for early access today at playlist.ign.com. This is Steve Downs, the voice of Master Chief, Sierra 117, and you're listening to Podcast Unlocked, the world's number one Xbox podcast. Now, finish this fight. Master Chief, out. Welcome, friends. Happy 20th anniversary to the Xbox here. This is Unlocked 520. It's IGN's weekly Xbox show, or in this case, twice weekly. We have two episodes for you this week. I'm Ryan McCaffrey, and I'm joined by Miranda Sanchez, Destin Legary, and our very special guest, old friend of the podcast, Seamus Blackley, none other than the creator of the Xbox himself. Seamus, it's been a while, my friend. It's great to see you. It's great to see you, too. You know, it, it just occurred to me to ask you a really stupid question, which is, is there an Xbox 420 show where we could all smoke a joint together, or is that... Yes. Uh, well, I mean, it's... We can just... If you have anything on hand now, then you're welcome. You can just... We can cross the number out and just dude, go with a, 420. I'm at, I'm at work, dude. I don't know what you guys do at IGN, but I, I'm at work. This is a serious thing. I mean, come on. Hey, we're all in California. It's legal. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's great uh, to see all of you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Ryan. And it's great to see you. You are the, the Xbox's resident renaissance man. You're a man of many talents, uh, which we're going to talk a bit about. We're, I mean, it, I guess we'll just start here. Are you known for bread more than for the Xbox at this point? Yeah, it, so it's a there, it's a strange thing in my life that uh, I'm not quite exactly sure how to deal with ever, which is that, you know, I started out um, with <laughs> the nickname the swine in graduate school because I'd walk out of exams early, uh, and I was like a <laughs> physics guy, and then I did uh, game physics, um, you know, at Looking Glass, and then yeah. uh, I made this flight simulator, and so I, then I was a flying guy, uh, an aerobatics guy, uh, and then. Uh, and then you're then I was the the trespasser guy, this huge failed guy, uh, and then the Xbox guy, and you know bread guy, and the, there's another thing I'm doing with my day job, and it seems very surprising to people that you know you would try out different things in your life, and I think it's a little depressing to me because the universe is so amazing. There's so much incredible stuff to learn and know and do and try, and there's no time. Human lifespans are so short. You have to try stuff out and get to it, and I just think that um, whenever somebody tells me, oh, God, you know, you do all these things. Have you done all these things in your life? I think to myself, gosh, and I just, it's not enough. I wish, I wish we could do more. I wish we could experience more of life. I think, you know, the universe is such an incredible place. Just look up into the sky. You know, my God, we live on this tiny slice of a tiny planet with a tiny experience for a short period of time. You have to do as much as you possibly can. At what that point did you start having that philosophy? Uh, I guess always. You know, I always wanted to know what was going on. I wanted to know, I can remember distinctly wanting to know why it was that um, the wire plugged into the wall made the television work. 
And I wanted to know if the television people came through the wire and how they came through the wire and if it was a picture that was rolled up and shot through the wire somehow. So I tried unplugging it, which was no doubt fairly, uh, fairly irritating to my parents. Um, <laughs> and uh, I tried putting I remember trying to jam model cars into the end of the of the television cord to see if the model car picture would appear on the screen. And I guess there's that's where Forza came from. <laughs> that's how they do it at playground they, they are is. wizards <laughs> go figure although it was uh, true there was there was a great there was a poll you know people have been doing these polls about the, the uh misunderstanding of technology for a long time there was a poll in the 1980s where they asked the man on the street how a fax machine worked and I, something like 80 percent of respondents actually thought the paper was rolled up and pushed through the wire to the other fax machine what? That's no, true. And and well, what? you have to remember that this was in a world. They had the that tubes, had, right? But it had no digital technology. So the idea of a digital photograph or of transmitting something through bits was something that nobody knew yet. And so mm -hmm. the idea of that happening was still like super magical and uh, was very difficult to explain. And now everybody gets it. But, you know, the world changes and and in some ways becomes more interesting in some ways it becomes more pedestrian because as we continue to exploit all these new and interesting technologies like the magic kind of goes away right and so right. you understand more and more and you can fake more and more things and you know that's kind of tragic so i think maybe in some ways as you get older you end up preferring the world when things were more magical i don't know yeah i, I would say too uh one of the things I actually really enjoyed is uh so as you are a bread person now. I mean, you have been a bread person. You've been many different things. When you say um, bread person, I tend to think of like a giant man made of bread sort of marching <laughs> and destroying cities. Oh God, it's bread person. gingerbread man. Or the, or yes, or or bird person's cousin who has like one bit part <laughs> okay, in yeah. Rick and Morty. Shout out to Honestly, Rick and Morty. If, Okay, sorry, so if, bread if person, were, yes. Yeah, if I were a bread person, that'd actually probably be nice. Just stay inside, don't go near birds, you're gonna be okay. Um, <laughs> So first, uh, the biggest congrats on being on Ologies, which is actually one of my favorite podcasts. It's a science podcast where uh, host Ali Ward talks to ologists. And you are a gastro-Egyptologist, which you said was uh, sarcastic, but also true because you just know so much about bread. You're on the news. You've been interviewed by so many people about this. Um, and, and one thing that really stuck with me in that interview when you were talking about it was just how it, it's so nice to kind of find the magic in doing something with your hands and like exploring something that's existed for so long and getting into, you know, the yeast of it all. So it's, it's really cool getting to hear you talk about that. I think really echoes on what you were saying right now about just, you know, finding that magic again with um, something that's, you know, even existed for a long time, even though, you know, it's a known quantity, but there's still so much to learn about it. Yeah, there is. It's it's and it's a very deep and very human thing, bread. You know, it's in many ways uh, the origin of our whole civilization. It's something so basic that you don't even think about it. It's like breathing in and out. You know, the assumption of having bread, and it turns out that there's a lot of a lot of magical stuff in there. Um, but if you if you haven't listened to Ali Ward's podcast, Ologies, you should go listen to Ali Ward's podcast, Ologies. I would say avoid the bread uh, episode, but the other episodes are all <laughs> tremendous because there's this guy talking whose voice drives me crazy on that. <laughs> Oh, well, I would say you get a great double dose of Seamus Blackley if you if you do. So nice back to back <laughs> episode right there. Um, well, before we get to the, the anniversary of Xbox, which is obviously the, the key reason why we're here, although it's just a good excuse to see you as well. I mean, I the 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 bread thing for our audience that hasn't heard about it. I'm not letting it's this weird. go because I mean, I honestly I followed this with fascination on your Twitter feed because, you know, the. When the pandemic started, a lot of people started baking bread at home, and that was cool. But you took it to quite the extreme in the in the most awesome of ways. Can you kind of <laughs> just let the audience know that may not have be following you on Twitter, which they should at Seamus Blackley? Like you, you did not use an oven for this, correct? Like you did, you did it exactly as the ancient Egyptians did. Old school, man. Well, yeah, and it it, it started way before the pandemic. Um, I, uh, I'd been baking bread for a long time, and a lot of nerds uh, like me uh, bake sourdough bread because it's more technical. And um, that means that you can collect yeast from anywhere, from you know the inside of car tires, from the wall, from 
place in your kitchen. You can go collect yeast, different flavors of yeast from different places in nature and make bread with it, just like people in antiquity did. You know, people in, in medieval Poland didn't make bread by going to the supermarket and buying yeast. They collected the yeast out of the air. And it's a kind of an automatic thing that happens because yeast are these little animals that eat grain and they come along with the grain if you mill the grain to try to make, you know, porridge out of it or whatever and at some point people discovered that it makes little gas bubbles if you leave it around and that if you bake it after it makes little gas bubbles it's really fun to eat and also that if you put it in a sealed pot and let it make gas bubbles it makes alcohol which is even more fun and so <laughs> that these things kind of start kick-started all of human civilization so i started you know screwing around with that and i've always been a big fan of egyptology um many people have heard this story but it's true that me and Ed Freeze used to write notes in uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics during the early days of Xbox. He's also a big Egyptology fan. And uh, when I discovered that somebody had a culture of ostensible ancient Egyptian yeast, uh, I was very intrigued and I tried baking with it. And you were probably watching on Twitter when I did that. And I got just a tremendous amount of crap from Egyptologists, from scientists, from biologists, from bakers, from everybody, because uh, you know, how do you know this yeast is actually ancient? What the hell are you even doing? Did you even know the ancient Egyptians didn't use an oven in the old kingdom? Who the fuck are you? Why are you doing this? You're a jackass. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm so a science Twitter is just, just like video game Twitter is what you're trying to tell me? Well, I might be, I might be overemphasizing it, but people were pretty upset because, you know, and, and especially of late when science has been taking a lot of hits, uh, a lot of punches to the nose. Um, you know, when you claim something, you have to be careful that you actually understand what it is that you're claiming. And so I was claiming that I had been given this ancient Egyptian yeast, and I didn't know if it was ancient or not. And so I went to the people who were loudest and who had given me the most trouble. And I said, okay, well, how would we actually do this? And if we're going to do this, um, how would we do it? And we developed a technique to exploit the fact that microorganisms can kind of go to sleep when they're, when they're dehydrated. And if you look, people have taken yeast and other bacteria and, and yeast and bacteria into space and dried them out and then resuscitated them and they lived again. They've done it with seeds and things as well, but yeast can go dormant for thousands of years, maybe indefinitely. So our idea was that inside the clay vessels, these, these sort of unglazed clay vessels that the ancient Egyptians used essentially as plastic, yeah. like Tupperware, uh, and then throw it when they break and make new. Um, there's, you know, an area inside the wall of the ceramic vessel that contains all these little pores in the clay. And so as you brew beer or bake bread, water brings the microorganisms into that interior space where it's protected. And when you throw that vessel away, those bacteria and yeast can go dormant. And so if we could extract them from that ceramic matrix is what it's called we might be able to resuscitate them and make beer and bread with them that has the same microorganisms leavening it and creating the alcohol that would have done so in antiquity. And so that was the kind of the point of the, of the project. And there, I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff I could talk about in there, but we ended up doing that. I ended up traveling all over the world and doing collection of these samples from uh, ancient objects. Um, and the reason that you know it's got a pretty good chance of being ancient is that if you sample, like if you scrape old pots, you're basically just scraping museum dust off the surface of some pot or, yeah. you know, whatever the guy who looted it from <laughs> Egypt, you know, put on there. Because most of these objects have literally been stolen from Egypt, right? And it's yeah. a big problem. Um, but if you, if you sort of uh, uh, extract from the inside and we found a non-destructive way to do that, you have a chance of getting something that's actually ancient. So we have that stuff. We have a lot of samples. We're going to continue now that the pandemic has ended to sample from places, including hopefully in Egypt. Um, we're doing DNA and RNA analysis, sequencing, using expensive machines, you know, making sure that we know what it is. And at the same time, uh, we're doing research into uh, the actual, you know, replicating the actual techniques that were used to bake in ancient Egypt, which, as you mentioned, didn't use an oven, um, not because they were stupid, but because um, the way they baked didn't need an oven and the way they baked was pretty great. And if you look on my Twitter feed, you can actually see examples of these, these superb loaves of bread that you can make without an oven um, using basically coals from a fire and a well-made piece of pottery. And how how the bread taste? Oh, it's it's fantastic, of course. I mean, look, when you have, you know, when when the pyramids were being constructed, you think about it, um, it was a public works project. The The Great Pyramid at Giza um, in ancient Egyptian is called the Horizon of Khufu because they were actually modifying the horizon. 
And people were very proud of this project. Okay, they were proud to be a part of the civilization. No other civilization that any of them knew about had ever done anything, even building in stone, let alone a project like this. And this was a whole society that had been brought to bear on this problem. And so you'd have 60, 70, 80, 90,000 workers uh, every day working on building this extraordinary thing. And they were uh, burning a lot of calories. They were moving huge blocks of stone around. They were doing a lot of skilled work to fit them together. You've probably heard that, you know, you can't fit a piece of paper in between the main blocks in the pyramid. These guys were really skilled. They, you know, thought about it a lot. They did a lot of planning. They did a lot of math. And it was a lot of hard work. And so they weren't going to be fed bad food. You know, it's like the first lesson of the Navy is... You know, the best food in the military is in the Navy because you have a bunch of people trapped on a ship together. And if you give them bad food, they're going to kill each other. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, you don't want a guy who can move a 50 ton block of stone to within the width of a piece of paper next to another one angry with you. <laughs> so you make him a good loaf of bread. And this bread is fantastic. Well, oh, I see now. Yeah, I got to get down there. I got to come down and see and uh, and participate in this. This sounds awesome. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I could go on forever. I mean, one of the things that I'll tell you, this is an this is an ancient Egyptian baking trick. The ancient Egyptians used coriander uh, as a spice in bread. They used uh, a grain called emmer, which is also the grain that the Romans used for bread. So the Roman armies and also the Egyptian armies marched on emmer wheat. It's now used sort of as a grain in a warm salad if you go to a fancy restaurant, which is hmm. kind of hilarious because this was like, the grain that fueled the earliest empires in the world, but it makes superb bread. But if you make whole wheat bread um, and you add a little bit of coriander to it, you will be very surprised at how good it is. And we know this from literally doing mass spectroscopy of ancient Egyptian bread and seeing the coriander signal in it. Podcast Unlocked is brought to you this week by Good Chop. I have been sampling Good Chop for the past week or so. And I'll tell you, my family and I are really impressed. Just last night, we had the ribeye steak it was like I was at a prime rib steakhouse. It was awesome. Truly excellent stuff. Did not have to leave the house. We just keep everything in the freezer until the day before. We're ready to eat it. We've been taking it out. We've got the, the aforementioned ribeye steak. There's some chicken breasts that we've had that have been excellent. Uh, ground beef that we've made tacos with. That's been fun. There's also thick cut bacon in there, which I have not busted open yet, but I am looking forward to doing so. Basically, you are getting high-quality meats delivered to your door. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered on your schedule. The products are vacuum-sealed and frozen at peak freshness so you can stock your freezer and cook them when you want, which is exactly what we've been doing over the past week. Choose from over 70 high-quality cuts from 100% grass-fed ribeyes, USDA prime filet mignon, free-range and organic chicken breasts, pork tenderloin, oh yeah, we had that too, and thick-cut bacon, just to name a few. They also offer sustainable and wild-caught seafood, uh, salmon, which we've, ha we've had, and that's been good, Pacific cod, scallops, shrimp, and more. So, like I said, been trying a bunch of these. They have been really good. Saves the trip to the grocery store. Don't have to worry about going there, getting the meat, and getting something good. You've got good stuff coming right to your door. So Good Chop, remember, sources its meat and seafood exclusively from American farms and fisheries so you can support local family farms and independent ranchers right here in the U.S. And it's affordable. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74. Good Chop also prides itself on sourcing meat that comes with no antibiotics or added hormones ever. No artificial ingredients, only the good stuff. They offer a 100% money-back guarantee if you are not satisfied. I encourage you to try it. I really do. Go to goodchop.com slash unlocked120 and use the code unlocked120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code unlocked120 at goodchop.com slash unlocked120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash unlocked120 code unlocked120. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at bufferingcast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I love that. That is the, the science of bread. Awesome. Uh, all right. Xbox. Let's, let's, uh, we'll, let's talk about that. 
Um, you've also <laughs> done a lot of science with the Xbox because you made it. Uh, I want to <laughs> I want to go back to the unveiling of it. You've I think you've told the story before, but correct me if I'm wrong. You were you were hiding under the table at that initial CES reveal with Bill Gates and The Rock. Is that correct? No. So so it's a little bit twisted around. So at the first reveal of the Xbox was at the Game Developers Conference in 2000. Yeah. Right. And Bill Gates walks out on stage and uh, and I come out on stage to you know talk. He, he gets on a stage and says some things. And then I had to get out and actually explain what the hell was going on. So I'm standing there with him. One of the things was that we had made a special Xbox jacket for Bill to wear um, and he didn't want to wear it. And so. I, I made this decision along with a couple of his handlers and I think maybe his wife um, to just walk out there anyway and kind of like make him do it because he was on stage <laughs> and he'd have to do it. And so if you look at the footage and I don't know if there is footage because I hate to watch myself, you know, on video as I hope everyone does. But um, I hand him this jacket and make him put it on and it's a little bit awkward. Then he puts it on. And then uh, I talk about the Xbox and why we're doing it and why Microsoft is doing it kind of with Bill there to prove that we're really doing it. And I had a couple of experiences, ironically, like one with Don Matrick, where Don at EA at the time, when I wanted to talk to EA engineers about Microsoft doing a console, asked me to literally call Bill Gates to prove that we were really doing it. <laughs> and there was so wow. much skepticism at the time. But we think about Microsoft in the 90s had this terrible reputation uh, for being a boring company. There was an antitrust suit brought by the US government, David Boies against Microsoft. The last thing in the world anybody would think of Microsoft doing at that time is a game console or anything that was fun. And so we had a lot of baggage to unload and we had a lot to prove at that time. And so Bill standing there on stage was a big deal because it meant the company was really behind it. You know, Bill Gates at the Game Developers Conference, which again, it may not seem so weird now, but at the time, nothing like that had ever really happened at the Game Developers Conference. You, know, you never saw like the CEO of General Motors or Intel at that conference. And now you do because games are so important, but then it wasn't the case. So he stood there and, uh, you know, and held his hands in, the, in this this position that he'd always do. He'd have his hands like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. And we'd be like, <laughs> dude, put your hands down. It looks like Mr. Burns. Um, and, uh, and I had to run these demos that we had running on the big Silver X prototypes. And they were yes. real demos. They really ran, but, you know, it was prototype hardware. So there was always a chance it would crash. We tried to debug them as much as we could. But Kevin Backus, you know, the first guy I showed the Xbox proposal to and my total best friend wingman was underneath, not the table. He was literally underneath this little, there was a, a stage riser and there was a demo <laughs> system on top of the stage riser and right behind it attached to the same monitor was another dev kit. And Kevin was under there watching a monitor playing the demos the same way I was because they were live. So they were in the same spot with an AB switch. So in case it crashed right. for me, he would click the AB switch and we'd switch positions and I'd get control of a demo that was like, it seemed like it hadn't crashed. Because the worst thing that could happen at that point, given Microsoft's reputation in the 90s, was like blue screening a demo of a game console, right? Yeah. The the things that I heard over and over and over again, which again, it's, it's hard to imagine now, but um, everybody thought, oh, it's Microsoft. Like it's going to have like, you know, Patches for games, ho, ho, ho. And of course, now that's <laughs> common. But at that point, one of the great things about console games was that they just worked. You put them in and they worked. And PC games were all this, this nightmare of patches and downloads. And it wasn't like patches now, which are easy online. Patches were a disc you had to go get at the store. And it was it was really a mess. And also the blue screen of death, which is, you know, which is well known. And again, this was before the red ring of death, which was actually named after that. So we had a lot to prove. It couldn't crash. And so poor Kevin who's a very tall guy, had to like sit under the stage and like, you know, do this crazy thing. And I'm up there trying to pretend like everything is cool. And, uh, you know, what's on my mind is I'm a failed developer with Trespasser. Like everybody should fucking hate me. I can't believe what a poser I am. I can't believe I made Bill Gates do this. It's going to ruin X. It's going to ruin Microsoft. and I'm going to be responsible. The demos are totally going to crash. And I'm really a total asshole. Like Kevin's going to die. This is all in my mind. And I'm trying to like act cool about it. And the, the even better thing, um, when you look at that footage and analyze my facial expression is that those silver X's and the demos for them had been developed with a huge amount of support from AMD. Inside those X's was actually a PC motherboard that had been cut like this to fit okay. inside the X, okay? And yep. we had hand-wired a video card on the PCI bus, which is brand new at the time, right? A brand new technology to this, this video card. 
Uh, and NVIDIA had sent people to help, or, uh, sorry, AMD had sent people to help solder it, given us support, like worked on oh, the motherboards, wow. debugged things. And they were the default partner that we had chosen to do the CPU uh, for the Xbox. And so because of that, I had all these great relationships with AMD people. They'd been like incredibly helpful and friendly. They had somehow reserved all of the front row seats at this announcement oh, no. at the Game Developers Conference. So they're all sitting down there. And the night before, Andy Groves, who at that time was the CEO or maybe the chairman of, of Intel, called Bill Gates, and they made a deal that Xbox would have an Intel CPU. And so I had to stand there while Bill Gates shattered all these people's you know hopes and dreams about AMD being part of the console. Now, it all has worked out okay. But, you know, that was really on my mind as well. And, and so it all culminated to the fact that when it all came off okay and we stepped off stage, um, I, I remember, and if you if you went to the GTC back then, you know that the, the assembly hall, the big, you know, auditorium was across the railroad tracks from the venue for the show. And I was in such a daze after this. And so I couldn't understand what had just happened. Like nothing bad happened. It all worked. This is... This might actually work. Yeah. Um, that I, I literally had to be pulled out from in front of a train that was about to kill me because I was so out of it. I was like so completely out of it. And then I got, I remember getting to our booth at GDC and having the PR people say, okay, so we have like 14 interviews for you this afternoon. And I was like, I, I don't know if I remember how to speak English. I can't do 14 <laughs> interviews. What the fuck are you even talking about? So I don't even know what I said in those interviews. Um, before I throw to Destin for a question, I, I got to circle back to the, the Don Matrick anecdote that you dropped there. So he literally wanted you to call Bill Gates. Did you? I did. Um, so it was him uh, and another guy. And the, the irony of him then becoming the Xbox boss, <laughs> I, you can't make this shit up. But uh, you know, EA Canada at that time, which he ran, did all the sports games for electronic yeah. And so it was really important for us to go and talk to them. And this was during a phase when I realized that the most important thing I needed to do was go out and credibly get all the game developers, right? And a lot of Xbox for me, from my perspective, was like ego subjugation and just going and doing the thing that needed to happen independent of my career at Microsoft or anything else. And so I go out and see these developers and I was meant to give a talk to uh, all of the developers at EA Canada, they had this really nice building in Vancouver and Don and another guy with a boss, the boss, co-bosses, or I can't remember exactly. And it was all set and I had set the prototype Xbox, which was one of the big silver X's up in their conference room. And I was ready to take a bunch of questions from programmers and talk about the philosophy of developer support and the tools, all the, you know, all the red meat of Xbox at the time. Uh, and the big bosses wanted to see me. So I went upstairs to their, you know, glass walled fancy office and they looked at me and they said, are you serious? Like, do you, you, do you expect us to believe this is really happening? You know, I don't want to waste all our entire staff's time on something that's not going to happen. How do we know this is real? And I didn't remember exactly how it went down, but I ended up calling, I was like, okay, well, I'll just call Bill. And so I called Microsoft and I didn't talk to him, but his assistant picked up and I'd been, there a hundred thousand times for meetings like getting all this shit greenlit and so his assistant was like oh hey Seamus I don't know where Bill is uh do you want to have him call you back and that's all it took huh okay and then there I get to talk yeah well uh besides besides the story of the whole jacket thing do you have any favorite memories of working with Bill Gates um yeah well you know um the the thing about Bill was that you know he had assumed the kind of, you know, um, what's the word, the mantle of being the CEO of this enormous company, right? But he was just a super nerd at heart and, you know, awkward and not a lot of social skills. And I had a lot of, you know, moments during the course of, you know, beginning with the Xbox where he really had to believe in us. Um, there was a, there was a time uh, we were at a meeting and I was talking about something with graphics. And this was when the X um, uh, 3DO guys who then worked for web TV that had been acquired by Microsoft were trying to say, no, 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 we should make the console because we already made one. Right. Which is, you know, we could talk about that. But uh, so they, you know, they'd say a bunch of stuff and I would be like, look, these guys just don't know what they're talking about. And there was a moment when I went too far on that and Bill Gates looked at me from across like the Microsoft conference, the board table and said, you're not going to get by with that, Seamus, you need to do the work. And I was like, okay, yes, sir. And, but he said it in such a way, it was like, 
He was like, I know you can do the work. Just go, go get the work done. And it was interesting because it was super motivational, even though it was like, you know, a disastrous smack across the face from the world's richest man across the board table at Microsoft. But it was still pretty good. Um, but the, my favorite Bill Gates memory is actually when we were launching the Xbox in Japan. And Bill came for that, too, because Bill was an epic celebrity in Japan still at that time in a very positive way. And we were going to play a game together. I wanted to play Dead or Alive together with Bill because that was, you know, a game that I thought Japanese audiences might really like. Sure. And, you know, I knew it was going to be a disaster in Japan for consumers. The reason I was interested in going to Japan and spend so much time there was good developers, right? But I knew we'd, I, we had no chance of being a successful console in Japan. But, you know, why not try? And so we went on stage to play DOA together and all this media and press there. But Bill wanted to rehearse first. And it being a Japanese game, um, you know, to switch from uh, single player to two player to, to head to head, um, you'd switch on a menu and it would say human and calm for computer because in sure. Japanese, this is the way that those games work. And you guys know this and the audience knows this. A lot of people don't know this. Bill didn't know this. There is a Microsoft product called calm. <laughs> and so when, when we were switching to uh, human versus calm, um, I said, oh, calm isn't calm, Bill. It's, it's, it's human versus computer. And he goes, he, and he made like the nerdiest joke ever, which none of you are going to appreciate, but it meant a lot to me. He said, well, thank God it's not Com Plus, which was like the upgraded version of Com, <laughs> which would have meant that like the computer would be better at playing and he would lose more. So it was a really good, super nerdy <laughs> joke that showed that he, you know, his, his heart is really the programmer's heart. And that's where he's at. And he's a super nerd. And when that comes out, instead of like Bill Gates, the media trained like CEO, it was really cool and special. Brandon, that's do you great. want to jump in with a question here? Yeah, of course. I think I want to jump a little bit to, since I know we're on a time schedule, um, some of the launch games. So I was pretty young when the original Xbox came out. So I think getting to hear some of the impressions of what would happen at launch and the games that the Xbox launched with is, is really special. So um, of the launch games, which of them did you think were going to be most successful? Well, I have to be careful with this because, you know, as, as, as I become more of a decrepit old man, um, you know, I think about things like the Duke and some of the launch games as this horrible disasters, honestly. But, wow. you know, but but listen, but for people like you, I mean, like they weren't. It was like it was these were like favorite games and they were important and it was good. And I have to have respect for that. I didn't really think about that. And that's one of the things that I've learned about, you know, this 20 year thing is to really think about it from that standpoint. And when we reissued the Duke controller, that was a big surprise to me. And I'd really think about that, that there were people who were very young when Xbox launched for whom the Duke controller was like a formative, important object in their lives, like a comforting object, like a thing that they would go to when their lives sucked to feel better. And I thought it was this object of ridicule and blame because I had to, I had to go through hell for that fucking controller. Um, but my experience of it is completely divergent from the experience of people who like grew up with it, right? And so I have to think about that and respect that. And the same thing is true for the games. Um, so obviously, you know, Halo is at the center of everything Xbox. Xbox for many years was the Halo player. That was its job. Yeah. And that had to do with the kind of relative weakness of a lot of the other launch games. It also had to do with the relative genius of Halo. And again, this is like time travel. So, you know, you need to kind of check your temporal bias. And remember that in 1999 and 2000, most people felt that shooters could never work on a console. And if you look back at the time at interviews and media, you'll see people very, very, very passionately saying that without a mouse and sitting up in front of a monitor, nobody could be successful playing a shooter and it would never work especially networked. These things are ludicrous now, but these were passionate beliefs. I had things literally thrown at me when I was doing press or doing talks like in front of popular audiences. I remember I went to Denver once, maybe it was Denver. And, you know, there was like, an, I would go to these auditoriums of fans as we got closer to launch and there'd be thousands of people excited about it, but there'd be people like heckling, heckling that it would have blue screen of death, heckling the controller, heckling, the idea that um, that it, there'd be a shooter on a console. And so you have to understand that the triumph of Halo is really that it was so good and so perfectly balanced and so well understood the dynamics of multiplayer, unsurprisingly, given the history of Bungie, that it 
not only launched the console, but it transformed people's ideas of what a shooter is and what type of game could be on a console. And so, you know, I think that honestly, Halo and that transformation uh, had as much to do with the success of Xbox as anything else, uh, you know, in the backing of Microsoft. So, so anyway, that so that that's the big one. Um, there were some lowlights too, uh, such as Dark Summit, a game which I never really understood, and like seemed like you know it was like a like a like a horror snowboarding game. And at that time, SSX was like <laughs> this huge thing for me, and SSX tricky. And we were right in the middle of like all of the you know the the um, you know X Games kind of you know games. And so it was like, well, you do this horror thing with like, you know, also snowboarding. And it was a really talented team, but it was sort of this crazy mix of things. And I was thinking to myself, you know, really, this is this is a launch game. Holy shit. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, I think it actually had moments of like whimsical genius when I look back on it now. Um, Munch's Odyssey is one that you may have played. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, I played that uh, one. I really love that game very dearly. I'm so glad that uh, that Lauren is back to designing and shipping games. Um, see some others, Fusion Frenzy. I love Fusion yes, Frenzy. Yes, I was going to ask, much. how do you feel about Fusion Frenzy? Because it was like one of my favorite original Xbox okay, games and so, I bring it up all the time. <laughs> so Fusion Frenzy is another game that's very much like Halo uh, in the sense that at the time, people didn't believe that that kind of game could work on a console. Console games were specific things. It was a platformer game like what you would see on Sony or what you would see on Nintendo. And this is the way the world works. People think that the future must be exactly like the present, but sort of like made bigger or better. And human beings never see the sea change coming. And so if you're in a group of people who who are looking at, you know, trends in the way that people are thinking about technology and, and party games was one of those things. There were a lot of people at that time including the founders of, you know, of, 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 um, of companies that are now famous for, for, uh, you know, casual games on mobile who saw the demographic changing and people wanting a smaller, shorter game experience. And I'm really proud of the fact that Fusion Frenzy got into the mix because it was the sort of game that faced universal derision for, including for me, um, from game developers and people who were like, you know, console experts were completely wrong because it was exactly the kind of game that people wanted to play. Yeah, it, it's so funny hearing that because I think by far the most played games I had in my childhood and games that actually show to people who don't play games often, like throughout my childhood into high school were Fusion Frenzy and the original Halo. Like those are the ones I would sit down with my friends who don't play video games and say, you're going to play this with me and we're going to have a great time. And we did. And it's it's interesting to hear that that wasn't really the belief going into it. No, it wasn't. And, you know, again, like the game industry is so different now than it was then. At that era, it was still not respectable to be a gamer. Mm -hmm. And I, it's really hard to, I guess, maybe understand that. But, like, you were still seen as kind of a loser, criminal, skateboarder kind of person. I guess being a skateboarder was seen as being criminal too then, which is not now. So the idea that a normal person could have permission to play a game was pretty novel. And, you know, I think really the iPhone at the end of the day did the most work there and and kudos to graham divine by the way for for really being the guy who spearheaded that and took the hits at apple there but um giving people permission to play games increases your audience exponentially and that's really how you unlock a lot of revenue it's not like you know trying to appeal better to a small audience you have to grow that audience and that's a real lesson and that's um you know, the thing you experienced when you showed your friends the game and suddenly they play a game. And the thing is that once you have that, now you have a chance maybe to sell them a Halo or a Forza or something else or sell them a console. And now you're really in business. And this was a big change to the business model and the idea of the demographics of a gamer that took place around the launch of the Xbox. I have I to ask, ask you like, about that. Oh, go ahead, Destin, please. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're talking about past history and the ridicule you experienced when launching the Xbox platform and people saying it's never going to work. And that you fast forward to today and Ryan sort of has a question like this and the questions we're going to ask you about like, how do you feel about what Xbox is doing now with game pass? Is it sort of like history repeating itself or do you feel differently about the, the current infrastructure of how games are delivered to consumers? Wow, I think that right now, um, I think all the console manufacturers are just holding on for dear life. You know, as 
we watch what's going to happen with the internet, which has an uncertain future at the moment, um, and the cloud, cloud computing, um, local versus cloud compute, and where games sit, how games sit in this infrastructure, how the business model of game works, games work, um, how you know NFT, all these other crazy you know blockchain things are going to affect the way that we monetize games, what the game demographics looks like, um, you know, what a game is. We see Epic buying uh, Weta. Okay, it's a big deal. Uh, Unity. Um, that and, was Unity, I think, right? I'm sorry. We saw, yeah, we saw Unity buying. <laughs> yes. Uh, in my fantasies, uh, uh, <laughs> Epic buys. No. Um, and interestingly, only buying the engineers, not buying in at the artists. Um, so, like, we're seeing cultural changes driven by games now. Um, and, you know, if you really look around and this is another kind of historical perspective thing, and I promise I'll get to answering the question. You just have to deal with my old man ramblings for a minute, but, uh, the way that, um, GPU has affected the idea of compute, the way that GPU has, in fact, has, has completely revolutionized the idea of what, uh, cloud compute looks like, um, all comes from graphics in games. And that in turn feeds back into popular culture and what the expectation of the audience is for what entertainment is. Is it interactive or is it not? Does it blend or does it not? And where do you play it? Does it follow you around and do you want it to follow you around? And are there different experiences on different platforms that you want to have? And all of these things are changing. It's a, it's, a, it's a moving target and it's all being driven by what content is working where and what experiences people want to have. You know, baking was a big deal during the pandemic. Animal Crossing was a big deal during the pandemic. And Nintendo exploited that really effectively. So I think that right now, what console manufacturers are doing, including Xbox, is just trying to hold on for dear fucking life to figure out what the hell's going to happen because nobody knows and everything is going to change. And do we have a local box that does our games for us? Does that make sense? Does it go in the cloud? Is that terrible? Do you need to feel connected in order to feel like you're playing a real game? Or do you want to play a game and not feel connected and feel like it's your own little world? Or is it all these things that at the same time or none of them? We don't know. And games that do all these things are making money or not making money. The audience is always growing. So, you know, uh, when I look at what moves Xbox is making, it's the same opinion that I have really of looking at what moves Sony's making or Nintendo. I think they're just trying to hold on for dear life and figure out what the fuck is going on. Are there Sony any has a big advantage in the sense that I think Sony has been built on since its beginning relationships with the artists and of anything the only the only constant in all of this is the need for great developers to make great games and so focusing on that is the way out and so my advice to you if you're analyzing the games industry would be to look for the companies that are focusing on securing and empowering the most talented developers those are the ones who have a future the future is not based on tricks of fintech, tricks of business models, tricks of distribution. Those are important. Those are necessary, but it's not sufficient to succeed. What's necessary and sufficient is to have a strong platform that has the best developers on it, which it has always been the case, uh, and to have those developers in a position to make new stuff and innovate so the audience is delighted. Well, you know, on that note, Seamus, as somebody, I mean, you've been a game developer yourself on a number of occasions for many years. How do you feel about unionization and the the sort of continued the sort of rising conversation around that? And uh, is is it something you're in favor of? How do you feel about that? Uh, I've gone back and forth on it, but um, you know, my wife is uh, an art director and set designer for television and movies, and so I have now seen how her union uh, affects her ability and her peers' ability to do great work. And it's become very clear to me that a lot of the time, the reason why you see such beautiful shows like Dune, for instance, the new Dune, which is so beautiful, is because the safe environment that's created by collective bargaining has enabled artists to step above whereas business pressures usually would preclude that. Yeah. Okay. And I'm not saying suddenly like, oh, you know, this huge pro-union guy, but the natural business pressures of entertainment kind of want everything to be more efficient and want to find the person who's going to do a job for the least money. And that's the opposite of what you want to do if you want to make something really special. So having some kind of business pressure that presses back against that in a healthy way seems to be very important. And I think as we move to um, a more commoditized model for games as development tools get more ubiquitous as, for instance, all of the new Unity tools that are going to come from the Weta purchase show up, 
Uh, it's going to be easy for a lot of producers and financial people and business people to decide that they're just going to find the lowest common denominator to make any given title. And that's going to make quality suffer. Nobody wants that. So what's the business pressure against that? Because there's clearly enough money to fund a lot of really beautiful stuff and collective bargaining can be one of the answers to that. And so I think it's an important evolution that's probably going to happen. Well, on, on a related note to that, um, just while we're on that topic, I mean, you've also kind of, you've been on the same but slightly different side of the fence. You've been an agent. You've represented game developers as well. You represented Vince Zampella and Jason West in their infamous Activision lawsuit. You represented Tim Schafer. Um, you know, based on your experiences then and what you see in the games industry now, does it, does it seem like publishers are treating developers any better now or any just any different than they used to? Um, I think it's basically the same as it's always been. And, you know, that's why I say that it's so important to have some kind of meaningful financial pressure up against the desire to minimize the compensation for the talent, because without the talent, you don't really have anything. And it's even a little bit more subtle than that. If you, one of the amazing things about game development, and this is true of, of film and television and writing, and so you guys know this very well, is that you have a group of people who can create value literally from nothing. They think of thoughts, they work on them, and then suddenly there's something very valuable there. And this is very different from almost every other business, right? If you think about real estate or manufacturing, right. there's some asset that has nothing to do with you that comes from mining or it comes from you know real estate redistricting and so the ability to profit from that has to do with beating another guy being faster being cheaper being more efficient taking advantage of some tax law taking advantage of some legislation that gives you distribution rights this is the normal way that people are trained in business and in business school and in the organizations and sort of like the the tradition of bringing up the people who run businesses like this and do finance these are the case studies they really look at games are very different games are a world in which you make the most profit by having the most creative people in a position to feel good about what they're making so that they do something great and change the world or change what the meaning of uh, a genre is like halo coming out and changing the entire definition of what a console game is that was fantastically profitable because those people had the opportunity as a team to do something really right something that they knew was good even though if they had been left to the pressure at the time in the game industry, that project would have been canceled. Um, Kathy Kennedy, who now you know runs uh, uh, you know Lucas for Disney, um, is somebody I've known for a really long time. She was one of Steven Spielberg's assistants. I knew her when I went to go work for Steven when I first came to Los Angeles. She's kind of our den mom. She's a wonderful person. Um, when I worked on Jurassic World, she was the producer, um, and. She once said to me something really prescient, which was that Hollywood, you can tell the film industry is a very sick industry. And there's a very easy litmus test for that, which is that if you watch the Oscars, which is supposed to be the pinnacle of everything great that's happening in that industry, that, that's peer reviewed, like your peers judging your work, right? So many acceptance speeches and perhaps all acceptance speeches Okay, ostensibly given by the people who have made the very best work every year in the entire industry. All of those speeches say a similar thing, which is our project was almost canceled. <laughs> Nobody believed in this project. Thank God that so-and-so championed this because everybody wanted to cancel it. This project never would have happened without the support of so-and-so. So what it means is that all of the best ideas somehow are the ones that the business itself is trying to crush. And that these underdogs somehow survive and, and, and are able to suddenly make something good. And that gets all the awards and the accolades. That's the business pressure that you want to find a way to make more regular. You have to have the financial pressures. Business need to work. But if you're going to have a really successful industry or a successful platform, you need to balance that with some other pressure that causes those crazy projects to happen on a regular basis so that the audience is getting new stuff that excites them and it grows. Miranda Destin. Yeah, you've painted a bit of a picture that might seem negative to some people. So I wanted to ask you about more of a, a positive angle. And just uh, I'm curious, um, 
what gives you the most optimism for the future of games, video games? No, I don't. I don't think it's negative at all. Uh, you know, the there's never in the history of the games industry been a situation with more people with more creative ideas and better tools. And we're going to see an explosion, uh, and we're, we're in the middle of it now, but an explosion of not only new types of games, but whole new genres of games based on the way that game designers take advantage of new technologies. People ask a lot about, you know, NFT and blockchain. Uh, it's, it's sort of a hot topic now. And, you know, it can be applied for a lot of nefarious reasons. I think, you know, if you look back to gold mining in various games, it can be a very negative kind of a thing. You can imagine people behaving very badly. But on the flip side, you know, what does Skyrim look like if you're able to actually make things that you own and maybe trade them or sell them with other players? Um, and it's outside of the control of the publisher. If it's under the control of a game designer, does it make a world more real? Does it make the experience better? You know, what does that mean? And so when I look to the future, I see an explosion of new technology and tools, devices that are all really new playgrounds for game designers to create new kinds of awesome shit that I want to play. And, you know, I've always believed from the very start of my life that the only rational proper use for a computer is to play a game. I think that's probably true of every technology. You know, I think the only proper use of any technology is to play a game. And I, I think about that, you know, my, a friend of mine recently got doom running on a pregnancy tester. I don't know if you guys have seen that or not. There's this brand yeah, new pregnancy that. tester that has an OLED screen on it. For it's some a demon. Congratulations. <laughs> exactly. And wow. so I think to myself, all right, that really, you know, that's the proper use of that device. Like, well done. Like, you know, everything should play a game. And so uh, I'm very hopeful for the future. I just think that you know, that's always at, at odds with the corporate desires of big companies who want to hold on to their profits is to sort of, you know, they want to kind of maybe do the opposite of having everything change. They want everything to change. I want everything to change. And I think it's unstoppable and it's going to be awesome. Miranda? I don't have anything else. You don't have anything that's else? It. Well, let's see. We uh, I, I had one more. So you oh, brought please, up Flight yeah, Simulator. We've got a few minutes or, left, so. Yeah, okay, you brought yeah up I was like, I don't want to hog it. You brought up Flight Simulator earlier. Uh, so how do you feel about the marketplace of Flight Simulator where fans are able to create stuff and sell it within that marketplace? Is that sort of uh, uh, an early version of what you're describing for the future of people being able to market their own creations? Early? That's that. This, this is a perfect version. I mean, like, you know, if you think back to the original Flight Simulator, um, you know, it was that was the original, like, maximum escapism. People would play Flight Simulator just to be able to go to another world, even if they didn't have an interest in airplanes. You know, it was a, it was the number one selling game for a very long time. And when we made Flight Unlimited and we actually outsold it, that was this huge accomplishment. I was so excited about that. But the idea of creating a virtual world that's a copy of our world and having people aspire to make it as complete as possible and the missions that people go on and the charities that people have, the charity work people have done. Um, it's really inspiring. It's awesome. And I think that is absolutely an indication of what the future can be. And so, uh, you know, you should, you should watch that space. You know, the, the flight simulator world is interesting because it's grounded in trying to replicate the real world of flying. And that gives it, um, you know, a really good solid basis for everything that needs to happen with respect to how the content works, where it goes, how it happens, you know, it lets people decide, you know, which model of something they want because it works better for them or it looks more like the real thing. It's a little bit more abstracted when you think about, you know, bigger sort of metaverse kind of stuff, which I know is a buzzword right now. But when you think about that stuff, it's less grounded. It's, it's, it's you know, less clear how any of that will work. And that's where you really need the guiding hand of an experienced game designer, or people really thinking about how game rules would apply to those objects and how those transactions would work in a world. And it all has to be based on gameplay. Otherwise it's just an artifice, right? And and as a player, all of you can tell exactly the minute that a game asks you for money, if it's some bullshit where they're just trying to gout, or if you're paying for something that actually has value and makes the game better. And that's the difference between a game designer controlling how the commerce works, right? And some yeah. business douchebag controlling how the commerce works. And we need to see more of the former and none of the latter if we're gonna succeed in the future with all this stuff. Do you have any so, thoughts about uh, Unreal Engine 5 being so readily accessible and stuff like Quixel Bridge that are just these huge repositories of assets? Like, is that another empowering tool that you would you think all is of positive that stuff or is negative? The, that's the best stuff ever. I mean, the fact that we're in a world where there's so much profit in games that that stuff can be released for free is brilliant. And everything we can do to continue a world where that free software idea 
gains momentum and power is important, right? You know, the, the, the danger is we give away all the tools and how does anybody make money and how do the best minds get attracted to making those tools? Not because, you know, people who want to make game engines are not doing it because they want to get rich. And that's part of the reason I think the games is so excellent. Like the game community is so great because really nobody's in it to get rich. There are a couple of guys, but everybody knows they're jerks. Um, everybody's in it because <laughs> they want to do stuff, right? And so uh, what you need to make sure you can do is make it possible to like, you know, feed your family and make those tools. And so the fact that the infrastructure and that ecosystem exists that enables it to be a good business decision to release all that stuff for free is an awesome sign that the future is going to work out okay. And if we continue to try to you know manage things and things continue to work out so that those free tools are available to people and if Unity really does what they say they're going to do and release all those tools from uh, uh, from Weta to the public and let you know a lot of people with a lot of different ideas party on those things and make new products that can be part of an ecosystem that supports the inclusion of more new tools and more new people who have more ideas, then we're going to be in great shape. And we're going to continue to have, you know, great games, you know, for the rest of our lives, which is all, all you can really hope for. Well, Seamus, the, the last question here as we wrap up, I kind of want to just get your overall thoughts looking back. I mean, 20 years ago, uh, the Xbox launched. I mean, you talked about how you've kind of had to retrain yourself to to see it through other people's perspective a little bit compared to, you know, some of the things, some of the, you know, I guess self-doubt you were battling in your own mind. But <clears throat> with the benefit of that hindsight, you know, how do you, what do you think about when you think about the Xbox 20 years ago now? There were, there were a lot of nights that I would drive home uh, when, when we were trying to get it off the ground uh, in tears. Cause I thought I had ruined my life. I was like, look, I fucked up trespasser. And now this is going to be a disaster. And, you know, this was my second chance and I'm done. And I'm never going to be able to motivate this big company to do the right thing. That They're going to make it into some shitty Windows box or it's going to be canceled. And I would like and I would feel like such a failure. And it was it was a truly horrible, terrifying feeling. And I get home and I go to sleep and I wake up the next morning and I'd be like, OK, I'm not going to let it fail. It's not going to fail. I'm going to let's go. And looking now at how everyone, especially young people, see it as inevitable and it's kind of as a thing that's been around forever. Um, it, it just means a lot to me. And it's hard to describe the feeling because it, like, like everything that you try to do that's new, you know, it's an idea it's so delicate, it'll vanish if you say it wrong. And now it's this giant, big, solid global brand. And aside from the fact that I feel insanely fucking old when you mentioned 20 years, <laughs> um, it, I feel just unbelievably lucky that it worked. Well, Seamus Blackley, uh, thank you for the Xbox. We're, we're here doing a podcast because of you and we get to do it every week and have fun with our friends and our audience. And I want what I want my audience to do. I, I don't ask the audience for much. What I want everybody to do is tweet Seamus Blackley this week at Seamus Blackley here for the 20th anniversary. Tell him thank you. Tell him what, and I'm being serious, tell him what the Xbox means to you and means to your life. At no. Seamus Blackley. I'm sure we'll have it as a lower third on the screen, but it's pretty easy. It's just at his his full name, Seamus Blackley. Send him some love. He deserves it. Uh, Seamus, it's always great to see you. Hopefully next time in person. Thank you very much for making the time to do this. Well, thank you very much for everything you've done. You know, um, you're going to make me get very emotional about this, but uh, let's, let's close with just one, one thing, which is that um, I really love games and I really love the way that games make people come together as developers, as the audience. I love the way people talk about games. I look at, I look at the four of you and I see, you know, the best example of what video games can do like for humanity and how much it means to people and how much it can enrich our lives. And uh, I'm just incredibly grateful for that. So thank you very much. Oh, well said. 
We are happy to be a part of the Xbox community. It has been very good to us. Seamus Blackley, Miranda Sanchez, Destin Legary, I'm Ryan McCaffrey. This was our special 20th anniversary episode, episode 520, or as Seamus has decreed at the top of the show, episode 420. Episode 420. Episode 420. <laughs> but we're back again with another episode at our regular time tomorrow. So look for two unlocks this week. Hope you enjoy them, and we'll see you next time. Here's to another 20 years. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye. Bye.